welcome back. This week, like last week, was meant to be a break, but instead I thought I would go into the archive and pull out an older episode and re-air it again. And that's what we're doing. Last week, we put Mari Andrews' 2019 episode back up and with a new intro from me. And thank you so much to everyone who sent me a nice message about that or listened or re-listened. I'm really happy that I did that. And this week is not from that deep into the archive. It's from this year, and it was one of my favorite conversations of 2021. You'll hear more about it in the original intro in a moment, but we split it into two parts, and you're about to hear part one of my conversation with chef and writer Julia Tertian. In addition to being one of my favorite episodes of the last year, it's also one that I thought would be timely for this week, which is the start of the holiday season. It's the time of year where there'll be a lot of gathering and talk about food and eating and body image. And this episode gets into all of that, which I thought would be fitting. So here's my February 2021 episode with Julia Tertian. Remembering that a lot of things that we perceive to be effortless actually require so much effort. I think that helps us all just relax a little bit. Welcome back. This is Let It Out. I'm your host, Katie Dalebout. This week, I speak with chef and cookbook author, Julia Tertian. Julia is a writer. She actually studied poetry. We get into all of that in this week's episode, but she has written multiple cookbooks and co-authored numerous cookbooks. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vogue, the Wall Street Journal, Bon Appetit. She's one of the greatest home cooks of our time, and the New York Times described her as at the forefront of the new generation of authentic, approachable authors. Julia not only loves cooking and writing, but she loves talking about food and she has a podcast herself, which we get into. And this week's episode is so much more than talking about food and eating and being a chef. We talk about creativity and and writing and habits and routines as we do on the show, you know, which is a theme regardless of who I'm talking to, whether it's a chef or a musician. And you'll hear how creative and how much on the same page Julia and I are about body image and the connection between eating and how we feel and the negative effects of the diet industry and the connection between food and comfort and connection to other people and our humanness. It's such a tremendous conversation that I'm splitting it into two. So this week you'll hear the first part and next week you'll hear part two. My show has always been long. And last week when I had visual artist Camilla Ingstrom on, I split that conversation into two episodes and I would love your feedback. Do you want to get all the content at once? Do you like it being dosed out to you over two weeks? I think when a conversation is robust enough, like the one last week with Camilla and like this one is with Julia, I put myself into the position of a podcast listener, which I also am, and I kind of like it. I kind of like listening to a little bit now and getting the rest in a week. So we're trying that again this week. Would love your feedback. I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation with Julia. I felt so great having the conversation with her live after and then listening back to it, editing it. And I really hope that you have that experience as well. I hope that translates as an eavesdropper to the conversation. You'll hear how I connected with her, and it's a really sweet story. Julia lives in the Hudson Valley with her wife and their pets, and we'll hear about her new cookbook. This week, we discuss cooking and her process of of working with some really interesting people on their cookbooks and then creating her own. We talk about cooking as a single person. We talk about cooking for others. We talk about, like I said earlier, the food industry and the diet industry and disordered eating and 
we even get into capitalism and the tie to perfectionism. We talk about effortlessness actually requiring effort. We talk about creativity and process and poetry. And I'll, I'll, I kind of leave this at a cliffhanger <laughs> with something that I share, but this felt like a very vulnerable conversation on my end. I shared a lot of what I've been going through with food and, and body image and cooking and, you know, since the pandemic and just in general. And so we get to that more in part two, but I'll current me will come back in here and give you a little preview at the end of this episode, but please stick around to the end. Thank you so much for being here, for listening. I'm incredibly grateful for you and this community. I love you. Enjoy this conversation with Julia. Thank you so much for being here, Julia. This is really tremendously exciting for me and just like keeps getting more exciting the more I, I kind of spent the day with you today and yesterday with your book and listening to your podcast and listening to you on, on other people's podcasts to prepare. And I discovered that we're even, I knew I really liked you from when I internet met you <laughs> the first time, but I had no idea that there was just like so much alignment in what you believe and how you live to to things that I've been contemplating and feeling. And it just feels really exciting to be able to talk to you on the podcast. That is all really kind and I really appreciate it. And I'm excited to talk to you and I'm grateful you're not sick of hearing me talk. No. Yeah, I think that there's a lot that overlaps in our, you know, Venn diagrams and I'm excited to talk about all those things. And I think what you just said too, I mean, the feelings are mutual and I think it speaks to what happens. I think when you kind of put yourself out there in your work and you're honest and vulnerable, like it connects with other people. So I've, from what I know of your work, like I've felt that. So anyway, I'll mm. just say that. And yeah. It's so nice. It's so nice. It means so much. <laughs> well, okay. I want to tell everyone else how, how we first connected. So I was aware of you for, for several years because you did my, my, Dear friend Jess Mernan's podcast, oh, I think yeah. maybe five, six years ago when your first book came out. Yeah, it was a bit ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think we recorded like before the book came out. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. 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 It was a long time ago. And I remember just really liking you and just being, oh, she's she's great. But I didn't even really cook. And I was just like, I really, I just liked you. And I think I, I started following you on the in an internet sort of a way. And then this May, my best friend, who ha actually happens to be a chef, um, it was her birthday, and and she's in New York, and she's actually moving here, but she's in New York, and I'm I was in Los Angeles at the time, and I was like, "What do you want to do for your birthday, pal? Like, we got to celebrate. Like, you know, how are we gonna? What do you want to do? I mean, I'm like, I'm here, you know, like we can't really do anything, but we would do these Friday nights for a while. We would like drink wine and have a snack together and FaceTime every Friday night for mm -hmm. like a like early pandemic. And for her birthday, all she wanted to do was, oh my God, I don't know why I'm getting emotional saying this, but <laughs> in New York, what we would always do would we would meet at a restaurant. As if saying this is like an exotic activity, but <laughs> <laughs> well it sounds that way now. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> We would meet at a restaurant and we would, you know, have a have a meal, but often we would get Caesar salad and French fries. And that was just kind of our, our thing or, you know, wherever we were, we would get whatever. But she was like, I really want to have Caesar salad and I want us to make it together. And I'm just like, oh God, like I do not cook. Like I, the whole time I lived in New York, I never cooked even like in the pandemic. Like I didn't even really, at that point, I, I hadn't really even like cooked for myself. Like I was eating avocado toast salads that I would just like toss together, like not the kind of like I'd be embarrassed for anyone to even kind of see how I was eating and like yogurt, like anything I could just kind of toss together. But I'm like anything for my friend, like, sure, I'll make this recipe. So she sends me a photo from a cookbook of her favorite Caesar salad. And I'm like, okay, here we are. So I get all the stuff and cleaning anchovies and all the things. 
And I kind of enjoyed it. I kind of enjoyed putting it together. <laughs> I took a photo of it. I put it on my Instagram. And then I saw like who the recipe is from. And it was you. And I tagged you in it. And you were so nice in the message back to me. You were like, oh, it looks so good. And I, I sent her a screenshot because she loves you. <laughs> and it was this real birthday moment. And then I was like, this is... I got to shoot my shot. So I asked you to oh come on God. the podcast. And then here we are. <laughs> and here we are. Well... Happy belated to your friend and Carolina. That is so sweet. And I just, I just want to say that you making yourself, you know, your toast and your yogurt and your salad, like you are cooking and taking care of yourself. I just feel like that needs to be said. So. It's true. That's yeah. true. Well, we, well, we'll get into all that. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just heard that, and I was like, wait, why is she saying that's not like? You're cooking. You're totally oh, cooking. All right. Training wheels. Okay. That's, that's, <laughs> that's cool. I'm in, I'm into that. But anyway, I'm, I'm so happy you're here. Your Caesar salad is so good. I've made <laughs> it many times since. I feel like I kind of have it down. I'm so glad. Yeah. So glad. The Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar. Best name. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I, one day I want to like bottle it, but I've really, I've looked into this. I've like really thought about it, but it's like, it's getting into a whole other business that I'm oh, not wow. so sure I want to tackle. It's like a little overwhelming. So maybe now, someday. Yeah. yeah, maybe someday. Sure. That's really cool. <laughs> I I would be your, I already am your cheerleader and hype girl, but I would be the um, official of that product, especially. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah. Let's check in. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You'll be back on the podcast for that. I've been exclusive. thinking about it for so long, but anyway. Okay. Sorry. Go on. No, no, that, well, this is, okay, so I, I want to go back and hear about your, your history and, and have people get to know you, but I'd love to first start in the present of what's present for you. What have you been, what's coming up for you today? What have you been learning and contemplating lately? What's been coming up today, to be totally honest, is, so my wife, Grace, and I live in a, a kind of an old house or I don't know, sort of built in, whatever, you don't need to know all this, but there's a portion of our house that's very old. And we have known that there has been this leak happening, but we've kind of ignored it. <laughs> and it kind of got to the point where we couldn't ignore it. And so our plumber, who's also like basically our neighbor, he came today and he basically had to like take apart part of like our ceiling and our wall. And oh, no. we were both just, I mean, these are like very nice problems to have, but we've also been incredibly cautious about all things COVID. And so it just felt very like, oh my gosh, like all these guys are in our house and doing this thing, but it kind of like couldn't be avoided. Anyway, I'm just telling you this because I think um, that's what basically took up my day today, <laughs> but also got me thinking about this, I don't know, just idea of like feelings of... um vulnerability, I guess, like safety and security and like also just like the unknown of what's happening inside the walls of one's home and <laughs> those types of things. But it's been interesting too, because basically we're just, I don't know, they fixed the leak, but now there's all these like holes in our house and we can see like the insides of our house, which is kind of amazing because I'm looking at, you know, pieces of wood that are probably... I don't know, 150 years old or something, which is kind of like amazing. And it seemed really daunting and scary, but now I'm like looking up at the ceiling. Well, not right now. I'm not sitting under this like open <laughs> thing at the moment, but it's also like, it's kind of cool. And I'm like, oh, it's not so scary. And so that feels kind of nice to not feel scared of like the stuff behind the walls. Like we've been avoiding it for so long, you know, like I think we've built it up in this way. So that is what's on my mind today, to be just totally honest. And it has nothing to do with food or cooking or <laughs> anything. Yeah. Well, I think there's something to that of like seeing what's under the hood or mm -hmm. cleaning out your closet or, you know, like I think from a feng shui perspective or from it's like going into those dusty corners. And exactly. yeah. I, I don't know if I, I live in this, my building's an old school and so it's really high ceilings and it's it's just a studio, so it's just the one room. But I I found myself kind of having this OCD cleaning in the pandemic of like mm -hmm. it's hard for me to even work without everything being in place, and even these like 
okay, I didn't clean the wind. Like I have to do the windows and underneath the bed and like, and just wanting to know and like cleaning out my closet multiple times. And it's just, I think there is something like you, I never sleep better than when I've like cleaned up my closet and have things, you know, and, and looking at those things that we, we put aside. I think this is such an, a good analogy for emotionally because mm-hmm. we all have those things that like that conversation that we kind of need to have or that person exactly. that we need to check in totally. with. And yeah. you're carrying yeah. that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, just open up the wall. <laughs> like, just deal with it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. fix the leak. Yeah. I could, like, go on with this plumbing analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually, like, am finding this very inspiring of, of like, some things I need to do yeah. life-wise or work-wise or, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, it's kind of like eat the frog or rip off the band-aid, but. <laughs> eat the frog. Have What's you heard that? of that? like kiss the frog no there's this concept called eat the frog that's like i think it's like a productivity concept of doing whatever the thing you're dreading most on your list doing it first and then it like creates momentum oh i totally believe in that i just never knew it had that yeah i don't know where that comes from i guess because eating a frog would not be great maybe (laughs) maybe not like the thing you most want to do. Yeah. 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 Have you ever okay. had a frog recipe? <laughs> I've never written a frog. Re- I've eaten like frogs legs, um, but I have never cooked them or written a recipe for them. No. So it's probably pretty safe to say it's not like the most pleasant thing. So it works for the analogy. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. Well, you got into food and cooking quite young and I know you studied poetry and I've heard you speak about, the connection between poetry writing and recipe writing. And I was wondering if you could start by talking about that. Sure. Um, I would love to. So yeah, I've cooked my whole life since I was really little, since before I can remember. And I have also always loved words and, and stories and writing. And when I went to college, you know, a lot of like the adults of my life when I was growing up were like, oh, you love to cook. You know, you're the kid who loves to cook. Like my parents would call me Julia the child <laughs> when I was a kid. Um, and so, and everyone would say like, oh, are you going to go to culinary school? Like, do you want to have a restaurant one day? Like, it seemed like this very linear kind of trajectory for someone, who, you know, young and interested in food or any age really, but I was young at the time. And I just have never been interested in that path and I always wanted to kind of live at this intersection of of food and words. And so when I was in college, yeah, I studied poetry, um, which might not be the most obvious <laughs> kind of thing to do in general. Um, but I have found it to be incredibly useful in my career. And in studying poetry, I, I guess I should clarify, I was like a creative writing major. Well, at the school I went to, you couldn't major in it, but I basically got whatever. None of that's important. I studied creative writing. I was reading a ton of poetry and sort of studying other poets' work, but I got to write so much poetry when I was in college. And I mean, I don't think any of it was like anything I would want to read right now, (laughs) but like it was like really earnest stuff, mostly about like food. And in the practice of studying poetry and being in writing workshops, I got really used to a few different things that have remained really useful to me. One is just the process of putting your work out there and getting feedback. (laughs) Like, that's incredibly useful. And I think the biggest thing for me that I've taken is that I approach every recipe I write as if it were a poem, which is to say, I, what I do for a living is write things that are full of description. (laughs) You know, I try to tell you exactly how something is going to smell when it comes out of the oven, what it's going to look like, what the texture is of something, how to shape a dough, you know, whatever it might be. I'm describing things, which is what you do when you write a poem. You're describing stuff and trying to, you know, allow people to just kind of see it and sort of feel it. And I'm also trying to do that in the shortest amount of words as possible which maybe, as you can tell from my answers to your questions, like doesn't come that naturally to me. So I, when it comes to writing, I'm like constantly just like refining and making things as short and descriptive as possible. So very much like approaching 
poetry. And I think in general, studying writing in school, you're studying communication, right? Like how to just, you know, read and write and talk to people and share stories and how to read them and how to read them critically and how to take them in. And so, you know, these are things I do like every day. And this might all just be me trying to justify spending, you know, a very large amount of money on an education that, you know, poetry isn't like something you most people make like a large income off of or anything to like make up for that investment. But yeah, I feel like I'm now going off on a tangent, but yeah, it's worked out. I love that. I mean, I think it's kind of one of those can't connect the dots moving forward, only going back, which is Mm, always useful. Yeah. Yeah. You've co-written some of the most famous cookbooks, including The Fat Radish, which is one of those restaurants that Caroline and I would (laughs) always go to. And Gwyneth Paltrow's books, famously, and previous podcast guest who I love, Dana Cowan. Mm. Can you talk about some of those experiences and what they taught you and what that was like for you? Yeah. I mean, I've had the great fortune of working on such a range of books. Yeah. Including probably most notably like um, the first two cookbooks Gwyneth Paltrow did and a bunch of other cookbooks from so many different people. And I think in that process, I mean, it's it's collaborating, right? So with each person, it's a totally different process and I learn something new each time. But I would say like the overall thing I've taken from those experiences, I mean, there's lots of logistics stuff, which I'm happy to talk about if it's interesting, like about, you know, recipe testing and producing a cookbook photo shoot and all those things. But I would say in general, the biggest thing I've taken from these just various collaborations is like the constant reminder that if if you're going to create a book of any kind, whether it's a cookbook or something else, like, are you the right person to be the author of this book? <laughs> like, is this your story to tell? And to really try and only work on stories that only you can tell. I think that's really important. And I think it just makes the process actually a lot easier and like interesting and gratifying for everyone. So yeah, for my own books, I've definitely felt that way. You know, they're really personal and they're, you know, my, you know, with every recipe, there's a story. So these are my stories. I'm not just getting to share, you know, my favorite Caesar salad dressing. And it is that. And I think it's, you know, I I love it. I make it all the time. But I'm also sharing the story behind it and where that came from for me and what my relationship is to this, you know, particular recipe. And so I have had both the experience of doing that myself and also helping people do that for themselves. That's very much been my role as a collaborator. And it's just been really amazing because I've gotten to learn so much from all of those different people, which is just a really just, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like a cool thing. (laughs) And yeah, I've gotten to sit like in the front row of like all these classrooms, basically. So it's, it's, it's been really cool. Okay, briefly interrupting this episode to tell you about the self-study journaling workshops that I've made over the years called the Let It Out Kits, and specifically a holiday self-care workshop called Comfort and Journaling. So does the holiday season stress you out? Do you love it and anticipate it? Are you somewhere in between? I have taught a version of this workshop every year for maybe the last eight or nine. I've done it at yoga studios. I did it at a store in Soho. I did it at retreat centers. And I used to call it putting happy back in the holidays, but really it's more about navigating this season with seasonal depression on top of added holiday related stresses that come up between financial stress and guilt and family and friends and navigating all of that on top of doing our day-to-day lives. They don't stop. So we'll cover hosting anxiety, thoughtful gifting, receiving, navigating, eating and body image and overcommitting, travel, and just go over anything that's helped me develop some self-awareness and self-tenderness that can be helpful 
and you'll receive access to the workshop recording as well as written exercises and prompts. So if that's at all of interest to you, the link is in the show notes to the Comfort and Journaling Workshop and all of our kits, all of the kits I've ever made. I have one called the Right Kit. You can read all about them, but 22% off with the code COSMIC. When it comes to working with these people that we just mentioned, what does the process look like? I'm envisioning it as they kind of have their their recipes that they maybe always make or our family recipes or things that they cook. What is the process like on your end? Are you taking notes and then taking that recipe and then testing it and, and doing that part of it? Or are you coming in with ideas as well? I'm just not really familiar with how a collaboration sure. like that would work. Yeah, it's it's very mysterious because <laughs> I feel like it works differently kind of on every project. And I've talked to a lot of other cookbook collaborators and co-authors and writers, and we all basically are like, building the planes while we fly them, (laughs) essentially. And I think there's like a few things that each of my experiences have had in common, but they have been really different based, you know, just from this like logistics standpoint, they've been different based on what material already exists. So like you brought up the Fat Radish cookbook before, which was such a fun project to work on. And they had essentially like a binder of the recipes from the restaurant. And my job was, I mean, one of my jobs, I guess, was to basically act as like a translator is how I think about it, to translate these kind of restaurant recipes into recipes that anyone at home can make. So that meant looking at things that were written basically by like one chef, one professional like restaurant chef for another. So, you know, things were usually in larger measurements, you know, they're cooking for like a larger volume of people than most people do at home. Things were often in weighed amounts. A lot of restaurants and especially bakers, I I worked on a bread baking cookbook and it was really similar. Things are given in weights and most American kitchens don't use scales, even though I think that they make things so much easier, (laughs) which I would be happy to talk about. I think like people are intimidated by them, but it's like so, so much easier. But anyway, I would like do a lot of math, basically converting these weighted measurements into, you know, more recognizable measurements for home cooks. And then again, a chef writing for another chef, it's someone who really knows how to cook, talking to someone else who really knows how to cook. They don't have to say very much in terms of instruction. (laughs) You know, it might just say like, mix and bake the cake or something, (laughs) you know, like, and you don't know which order to put the ingredients in the bowl or whatever it might be. So my job is to come in and make make recipes work for home cooks. I would say, if anything, that's what I specialize in, making recipes that home cooks can really succeed at making. And so that's kind of one end of the extreme, like the restaurant kind of cookbook, like a binder of recipes. I've worked on a few projects like that. The other end is working with someone who has nothing written down, um, which I've had experiences with both restaurant chefs (laughs) who have been like that and home cooks that I've worked on their cookbooks with. And that is, as opposed to taking kind of the binder, so to speak, that usually involves me sitting in the kitchen while they're cooking and I'm sitting there with my notebook and I am taking copious and like very detailed notes. And as the years went by, as I worked on various cookbooks, because when I started, I mean, I'm not that old, but I guess I've been doing this for a long time, like 15 years, I think. And I mean, I didn't have an iPhone at the beginning, (laughs) like that's been a big change you know, I was, I was a real Blackberry girl for a long time. And the iPhone has actually changed my work a lot because I video people cooking a lot because it's really helpful to go back and see because a lot of people do things they don't even realize they're doing when they're cooking. Like people who are really good cooks and cook intuitively, they're tossing in this and they're, you know, turning the stove down a little bit in the middle of cooking something and then turning it back up. And they might not think to tell you those little details, but those details are really important. So I'm doing like a ton of observation, a ton of note taking. I've sometimes with different people I've worked with, I've gone as far to measure out ingredients before they start cooking, knowing what they're going to make. And, you know, we've talked about it before. And then as they're cooking, they can 
cook really intuitively and add like a little olive oil, a little vinegar, whatever. And then at the end, I remeasure and see what's left. So I know exactly how much they've added. I mean, that's really intense. It's like, that's a lot of work. Well, I loved you. You said somewhere that recipes aren't prescriptions, they're frameworks. And Mm -hmm. I really loved that. It felt very poetic to me. And I think that's a good message for all areas of life, you know, like I've been too dogmatic and prescriptive about, you know, wellness things or Mm -hmm. self-help things, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think it's a, it's a really nice framework and, and definitely for cooking. Could you expand on that a bit? Yeah, totally. And it's something, I'm really glad you brought this up because it's something that I have continued to think about and I think allow myself to have those feelings evolve. And I, I am someone who, as I just mentioned, like, you know, I obviously put like a lot of time and thought into the recipe writing process and I really care about the reader. You know, I think with a cookbook, when you're giving someone a recipe, like it's one thing to write a book and, you know, someone might not like it or whatever. And, you know, that sucks, but that happens. (laughs) Um, And with a cookbook, when you're writing recipes, not only are you asking for someone's time to like read it, but you're also asking for them to go spend money at the grocery store and come home and then cook something. So they're spending more time and money. Like these are investments I like take very seriously. (laughs) And I really want things to work out. And I'm so happy you shared the story about the Caesar salad dressing. And that means a lot to me to know that like, you're not someone who, like, as you said, cooks very much. And maybe you're like a little bit skeptical, but now you've made it a bunch of times. Like that makes me so happy. (laughs) Like, and it feels like, you know, a return on that investment to use like business talk, which I don't really even know what that any of that means. And so in terms of like recipes being frameworks and not prescriptions, I think they're often taken as this thing that has to be so serious and official and you have to follow it exactly as I was describing in the process of testing it. I mean, that's available if you want. Like I think some people are really comforted by following something to the letter. And I think that allows a lot of people to feel very supported, which I'm all for. But I also, my goal with my recipes is honestly to give you all the information so that you don't have to keep using it <laughs> so that you learn like the, that muscle memory on your own. I mean, I guess I'm just trying to put myself in a business. I don't know, but like, yeah, like I was saying, I, I cook very intuitively when I'm at home. I'm not cracking open a cookbook every time I want to make a meal and I cook every day and it's like the most relaxed part of my day. And I just want as many people to feel that as possible. So I think recipes are this, you know, especially a recipe that's been well tested and thought out. Like, it's this thing you can rely on. Like, they're training wheels in a way. Like, if you want to use them, great. And if you want to just reference them, great. And if you want to flip past the page and just, like, have it in the back of your mind, great. (laughs) Like, all of that is possible. So, yeah, they're there if you want them. If you don't want them, there's stories, you know, there's pictures, like there's a lot in a cookbook to to use. And I just try to put as much as I can in there. And I just think what I would hope all home cooks feel at some point in their kitchen is just a sense of like freedom and relaxation. And in terms of the sort of prescriptive thing, the thing about this that I've thought a lot about more since I first kind of like shared that idea in writing is I think it's all tied to, you know, you mentioned a similar thing happening with like wellness stuff for you and stuff like that, like that. I'm glad you shared that because I think these things are all connected and I think they all tie to like perfectionism to a sense of like, there's a right way to do something like there's not a right way to roast a chicken. (laughs) Like, you know, and I've shared ways in my books, like, but all the ways work. Like you put the chicken in the oven (laughs) and you cook it, like that's it. And like, you could get into all the details and like, there's different ways too, but there's not like the best way. There's just various ways. And I think the sense of perfectionism, which the more I understand about it, you know, the more it's rooted in things like white supremacy, which might sound like, you know, a crazy thing to talk about after just talking about roast chicken, but like these things are all really tied together. I think the sense of, yeah, like a right way, or this is better than that. You know, that's something that I think happens a lot in cookbooks that I very much want to move away from. Mm, God, I love that so much. It's like, 
this need and want to be loved or to be right or be correct, mm-hmm. you know, really taints something that could be just tender and nice. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think um, exactly. this is maybe, you maybe you, you just covered this. I think this, this is maybe, you spoke you maybe about just covered this, but effort, I, I wrote this down, effort that goes into feeling effortless. Mm. Can you talk about that concept? It's It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. I think the first thing that comes to my mind when you bring that up is I think how a lot of us feel when we open something like Instagram or when we open a cookbook where there's really pretty pictures and it seems like the napkin just fell that way, right? <laughs> like, and I can tell you, having been on a million food photo shoots, like the napkin doesn't just fall that way. Like there are people who like mess with it so much. That napkin was probably preceded by 10 other ones and they've tried this color and that color and this pattern and I'm going to put it over here and I'm going to put it under the spoon and no, I'm going to, you know, whatever. Like people just go crazy with these details to get to the point where it seems like it just, you know, you just woke up that way. to borrow from Beyonce when I'm talking about a napkin. I don't know, that feels weird. (laughs) So I think remembering that a lot of things that we perceive to be effortless actually require so much effort. I think that helps us all just relax a little bit. And I guess the second thing that comes to mind, because that's very like, you know, a reputation and image and all that kind of stuff. And I think there's another part to this kind of idea of the effort that goes into things being effortless that feels like a little bit deeper to me and less um, outward, more inward, which is just that feeling of whether it's you're relaxed when you're cooking or if it's like feeling really relaxed around your friends, which not everyone does, right? (laughs) Like some people are hiding something or not sharing something or something like that. Like that feeling of just being sort of joyous and carefree That's really just hard to achieve. And I think sometimes just recognizing the work that we have to do just on ourselves and with ourselves to essentially just be a little bit kinder to ourselves. It takes work. I don't know. Like I, I'm very pro therapy, (laughs) Um, something I do a lot of and I talk about all the time. And I also know that it doesn't, it's not like the right thing for everyone, but I think whatever whatever tools you need to, you know, really take care of your mental health. I just think finding those tools and using them is incredibly important because I just think it takes effort to be alive in this really tough world. And I just think it's good to recognize that because I think a lot of people think other people are having an easy time. And I just, I don't think anyone is. And I think some of us are having a much easier time than others a thousand percent in a lot of ways but you know it's all like I don't know I guess things are relative and whatever but and you kind of were talking about that on this episode with with Dr. Lindo Bacon which I really want to have time to get into but Mm. that concept of feeling humanness is 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 tough you know so we turn to all these coping mechanisms and just knowing that instead of trying to change it was mm-hmm. was really helpful and and I think you just articulated that a bit and then I find with with people too like what what you said about the napkin and and the cookbook I think the more time I've spent with people that I've put on a pedestal whether it's been in a work situation or a romantic situation or it's happened a lot recently I think the pandemic has shown me more humanity because it Mm -hmm. it kind of became primal of like we were stripped of a lot of the things that made us status I guess and I think in some ways there's also so much privilege like like you were saying but it just has showed me again and again the people I think are you know just so effortless and cool like also have insecurities and we all put on our pants one leg at a time yeah totally I think like it just I don't know normalizing like not being cool <laughs> feels like really valuable. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I wrote down 20 things I learned last year. And one thing that I wrote down was that I am warm. I'm never going to be 
cool. I'm never going to be elusive. I'm never going to be like, I always wanted to be like an Olsen twin. And like, you don't, I'm wearing big sunglasses (laughs) and you don't, it's just like, that's not me. Like, it's just never going to be how I am. (laughs) That's so funny. I think being warm sounds great. I think that's, (laughs) I think that's great. I think so too. I mean, it's, I'm stuck in here. It's all, it's all we've got to work with. And, <laughs> and you seem, you are, and to me, like a lot of my friends are cool and warm. Like to me, you're very cool, <laughs> but like you're also warm. And I've met people who are cool and not warm, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm like a good room temperature. I don't yes. Know. <laughs> yes. Totally. So as I mentioned several times, I listened to your episode with Dr. Bacon. And mm-hmm. I was so happy to see that they were on your show. And I, I also saw on your Instagram that you were reading my close friend, Christy Harrison's book, Anti-Diet. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it was just so comforting to see those two things were, were so comforting because I, I'm assuming we're, we're probably on the same page, body image and, and food wise, which I think is and, and I'm, I want to ask you if that feels to me as it's kind of rare in the food and restaurant and cookbook industry. Has that been your experience? A thousand percent. And, you know, I think this is definitely an area where, as we were saying at the very beginning, like I think our, you know, Venn diagrams kind of overlap or whatever. And I think that a lot of people get into the world of, kind of food media because they come from not like the happiest of relationships with food. And I'm saying that because I've talked to a lot of like friends and colleagues about that. And I'm saying that because I include myself in that. And I think for the majority of my life, I very, very much was, I was, I was brought up in diet culture, like raised in it and I practiced it and I I preached it (laughs) for a really long time. Because I didn't really know it was a thing. Like, I didn't know there was another option. And as I've started to do things like read Dr. Bacon's books and read Christy Harrison's books and read Aubrey Gordon's book and, you know, follow her work and read people like Sonia Renee Taylor and, you know, I could go on and on and I will for a little bit because I think these names are really important. Sabrina Strings and you know, fearing the black body and, you know, the racism that's at the root of diet culture and fat phobia, which was news to me. I didn't know that. I wasn't taught that. And learning about these things has helped me personally, and it's also helped propel me professionally. (laughs) And on a personal level, I have, these words are sensitive, I know, and so I want to be careful about them. But I would say I definitely had for a really long time, like a very disordered relationship to food and eating. And I think part of what has drawn me to my work as a cookbook author is this honestly, like very false sense of control over food. You know, like my work is about measuring things down to the teaspoon. You know, it's about telling you, you know, maybe not the right way or best way to do something, but like ways to do things and to give you these instructions. And that's very seductive for me. You know, it's seductive for me to feel like I can have that control and authority when in reality, I was often feeling extremely out of control (laughs) and a little like out of my body. And so as I've learned more of these things and tried to truly embody them, and I mean that like literally, (laughs) I have just felt so much better and happier and more close to myself and gotten to know myself more. And that feels really valuable for me personally. And it also feels incredibly valuable to put into a cookbook that has the word healthy on the cover and to talk about healthy, not being the same thing as skinny. (laughs) I feel like we have had this like wonderful conversation and if you had to delete all of it and keep like 10 seconds of it and nothing else. And if I could only share one thing, that's what I would share. Like healthy isn't the same as skinny. Like they don't mean the same thing. (laughs) And maybe that's obvious for people, but if it's not, it's just worth saying or worth reinforcing. It's just something I wish I understood a long time ago. I think I could have saved a lot of pain. So 
Yeah, those are some thoughts. And my thoughts on all of this are constantly evolving. I wrote part of what makes Simply Julia as personal as it is are a number of essays that I wrote in the book, which is not something I've done in my cookbooks before. And I explored some of the things we're talking about. And I wrote this essay. The title of it is On the Worthiness of Our Bodies. And it's about all these topics. And I wrote like 10 drafts of that essay. If I were to write it today, I think I would probably change some stuff or add some stuff. You know, I'm I'm totally like, it's cool. I'm happy with it. <laughs> like, I'm happy it exists. But that's just to say, like, I'm constantly learning new things about this. I'm not an authority on this in any way. I'm just sharing what I feel and what I know. And um, I hope that it, just like the recipes, feels accessible and supportive. Like, that's that's my goal. Well, it's interesting. Health at Every Size was such a seminal book to me in my eating disorder recovery. And then I felt like, oh, wow, it's so cool to know this. But unless everyone else is on the same page with this, it's like still hard to live in this world that is so fat phobic. And we have this internalized fat phobia and, you know, with racist roots and everything that you, you were saying. And in this episode with Dr. Lindo, you, the two of you were talking about, or I think it was, I think they said how these seeds that we're planting, we're not even going to get the the fruit from. Mm-hmm. And sometimes mm-hmm. I can be really down about that from mm-hmm. a, you know, the, the movement and, and really wanting to, and, I, and I've talked to Christy about this too, of like, God, I just wish everyone had read Health at Every Size, or I wish yeah, everyone listened to yeah. Food Psych, or I wish everyone read your book because it can be. I'm someone who's who's so malleable that like, and, and still learning these things. But then I'm around people in in my life, and just very casually, they're talking about food in this way that's so restrictive, or wanting to lose mm-hmm. weight, or and then you know I try to. It's it, it's hard to to preach, you know, I don't want to like get on my soap stand and be like, you should read health at every size or like actually Mm -hmm. size doesn't have anything to do with health. And, but it can't be heard unless it's, it's wanting to be heard. So I think to have someone and when I saw that it was so comforting, I, I really mean that because to have someone in the food industry who's so prolific be like that, I think is or to understand this and, and say exactly what you just said, it is so comforting to, to me. And you know, Christy and I uh, have spoken about this a lot, and and for people listening, I know they've heard me talk about this on the the podcast a lot in one of my one million episodes with her. But she, <laughs> she and I both relate to the fact of like what you were, I think, alluding to, which is that when this is something that she, I think she talked about this in the book, but how when your career is in a malleable place while you have a disordered relationship with food or mm. a full-blown eating disorder, people end up going into like personal training or they start a wellness blog like me or they become like Christy became a dietitian or you get into food or whatever it is. And yeah, it's super common. Which is so fascinating. Yeah. And yeah. kind of sad, but also like connect the dots moving back. Like, okay, it's fine, but yeah, it's just wild to me. I'm just sitting here nodding at everything you're saying. And I think, again, like the thing with the napkin in the picture in the cookbook, you know, thinking it's effortless. <laughs> I think that applies here, right? And I just, I don't know. I'm really with you. I understand that feeling of, uh, I don't know, maybe sometimes like a hopelessness about the I feel like when it comes to, okay, I'm not like completing a sentence, sorry. It's just, this is so important. And all the people that you're talking about, that we're talking about, all the books we've both mentioned, like I will say like these books, these people have changed my life. Like listening to the Food Heaven podcast with Jess and Wendy, um, you know, just to add more names to this amazing pile, like these things have truly changed my life because how we cook and eat is our daily life. And I, for so long, spent my day-to-day life feeling scared of what I was eating, feeling guilty about what I was eating, um, feeling all sorts of things, feeling like a failure most of the time because I had in my mind some schedule or some program or some system or whatever. Like, that was impossible because it was totally, like, not in line with what my body needs. (laughs) And But I felt like I was failing. And that is, that's, that's really toxic. And 
all of these people and books and podcasts have truly gotten me out of like a pretty dark hole about it. And if my book can be, you know, one on that pile and help add to this conversation, like that's thrilling to me. And I also think it's a good reminder that we need these messages to come from everywhere because diet culture and fat phobia and fat shaming and all of these things come from everywhere. So, you know, I'm thinking about Christie's book and I, the last time we went to go visit my in-laws, I was reading her book and I brought it with me. And I remember I was sitting on the couch in their living room and we were all just, you know, kind of like sitting around in the afternoon and, you know, everyone's like on their phone or reading a book, you know, that kind of moment with family. And I had her book and it felt, I, I felt like I was reading something provocative, you know, like something like, are they going to see the title on this cover and like ask me questions or something? I mean, my in-laws are like amazing and like, but this was all me, right? This was my internalized fat phobia and judgment and stuff. And then I realized like, it's great that I'm reading this book. It's making me feel good and I'm happy to talk about it and actually led to like, I had a really nice conversation with my father-in-law about it, which was really cool. But I think it's just, I know I felt that way and I am have spent my life thinking about this stuff, right? So I can only imagine for someone else who maybe doesn't have that same background what it might feel like. And so that's why I think putting these similar messages and sharing these similar stories in all different forms of media are so important. So sitting maybe on your in-law's couch with my cookbook might feel a little bit different, <laughs> you know, might feel a little bit maybe of like an easier way in, maybe that leads you to Christie's book or Aubrey Gordon's amazing book or, you know, whatever. Um, maybe it leads you to listening to a different podcast. And I think this kind of speaks to something I've thought about a lot and gotten to share this thought a lot, which is this idea of like the quiet power of cookbooks. Like one of the things that has been unexpected for me because it wasn't something I did as like a plan, it's just kind of happened, is that because my work is so personal, it means I talk about my wife all the time. I've mentioned her a few times on this podcast. Um, she's awesome. <laughs> I love her. It's why I'm married to her. But also she's the person I cook for the most, you know? So she comes up all the time in my cookbooks because I'm always making us meals. <laughs> and so that's like when it comes to the stories, like I'm kind of a broken record. <laughs> like my wife loves this, so it's in the book. But that said, I have connected with so many queer women over the years and so many, especially like young queer women who have told me, you know, what it means to read the word wife written by another woman, like so many times and so casually and not in a book that has like a pride flag on the cover. Not that there's anything wrong with a book that has a pride flag on the cover, but you know, cookbooks are, they're really powerful because they kind of sneak into lots of different homes. Like they seem super friendly you know, I always joke like cookbooks are books, you know, that are going to end well, <laughs> like, and they're, they're kind of welcomed by people in ways that other books just aren't. And so I think they're really powerful. And I think that we shouldn't take that power for granted. So yeah, I don't know if you asked me a question. I don't even no, really that know where was, I went, but yeah. That was exactly what I was like getting to of like, I think you explained that feeling that I saw you know, listening to your podcast and hearing who you had on and what you were discussing and seeing you reading Chrissy's book and the the others, it made me just go, yeah, she's on my team. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, totally, like, totally. And it's yeah. more important for you to be, I mean, it's important for everyone to be on that team, I think, but like for someone with the, the, the clout that you have, but also like you were saying with cookbooks, like you can really do good. And yeah. that is so important to me because like you said, all day long, we're getting messages of like, be smaller, eat less, do these things. And from diet culture and wellness culture, dis or, you know, diet culture disguised as, as wellness culture often. Totally, yeah. And I think that we need, we need to be having these conversations all the time to, to remind us of this. And I think it, it's very easy to look at going back to the effortless, not being so effortless conversation. I think I could look at you from afar. And and I think I did like years ago. And I was like, oh, she must be a normal eater and the definition of Ellen Satter. Have you heard mm. Ellen Satter's definition of normal eating? No. Mm -mm. Oh, it's so good, Julia. I have to, I'm going to find it. And it was the first thing that was given to me 
on my first day of eating disorder recovery, but it, it's it's basically this long definition that's really beautiful. I'll, I'll send it to you after this. Please do. Yeah. Please Maybe do. I'll read it in the intro of this, but basically it's like Ellen Satter's like, you know, it's eating when you're hungry, stopping when you're full most oh, of the time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Eating. When, yeah. That one. Yes. It's so beautiful. But anyway, I just, you can look at people and think like, oh, they're just normal eaters. And the more that I've been around people who are truly norm, normal eaters, meaning like unaffected by diet culture, like intuitively eating naturally, um, you know, my, my friend Carol, be, being friends with this chef, you know, this person who food is part of her job, but she really didn't have the, the complex relationship with food that I do. And the more people I've been around who've, you know, worked in the restaurant industry or, or had just a such vastly different relationships with food than I do, it's really interesting to observe and, and, and watch. And then also noticing like tiny influences of diet culture here and there coming in here and there. And it's just so pervasive and it's just really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Again, just nodding. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm totally with you. Well, I really want to, God, there's so much I want to cover, but I heard you speak in, in a recent episode about the time consuming nature of cooking and that, you know, there's, there's patience that is involved in this. And that's, I think what I, I struggle with the most. And, and you give this example of, you know, looking at a carrot that needs to be peeled and, you know, that kind of being daunting. And I, I think I struggle with putting in that time and I'm in this feels very vulnerable to me but I'm embarrassed to say that like okay next week I finish asking that question and I leave this at a bit of a cliffhanger but again next week is I always think with this podcast, and this is why I'm apprehensive of splitting it into two parts. I've said this before, but I think, you know, around 45 minutes, an hour, sometimes it takes longer, hour and 15, we forget we're recording and we really just become people with each other having a conversation. And I think that has just started to happen maybe 15 minutes ago, if you were listening to this in real time. So maybe picked up on that as well. So next time I share a lot about where I am with food and cooking and we talk about healthy not being the same as skinny. We talk about the quiet power of cookbooks. We talk about what we call codependency cooking, cooking for others versus cooking for one. We get into death and spirituality and romantic relationships. I do the quick fire questions. We talk about friendship. We talk about the connection between podcasting and cooking Thank you again so much for listening and thank you to Julia. Thank you for going back in time with me and listening to my episode from February of this year with Julia Tertian. If you want to hear the rest of it, part two is in the feed. You can find it and I'll also link to it here. Julia's book is out and would make a great gift. I really, really loved speaking with her and, and having her on the show was one of my favorite interviews that I got to do this year. So before I leave you, and I hope that you have a great week and feel a bit of gratitude wherever you are, one thing that we talked about a little bit at the very end was this definition of normal eating that really helped me a couple years ago, many years ago. And I think about it all the time and I'm going to just read it now and leave you with this. This is a definition by Ellen Satter. She's a dietitian and an author of many, many books. And this is from Secrets of Feeding a Healthy Family, which was published in 1999. And it was her maybe third book. And she's written several. But this definition of normal eating has stuck with me and maybe it will stick with you too. Normal eating is going to the table hungry and eating until you are satisfied. It is being able to choose food you like and eat it and truly get enough of it, not just stopping eating because you think you should. Normal eating is being able to give some thought to your food selection so you get nutritious food, but not being so weary and restrictive that you miss out on enjoyable food. Normal eating is giving yourself permission to eat sometimes because you are happy, sad or bored or just because it feels good. Normal eating is mostly three meals a day or four or five or it can be choosing to munch along the way. 
It is leaving some cookies on the plate because you know you can have some again tomorrow, or it is eating more now because they taste so wonderful. Normal eating is overeating at times, feeling stuffed and uncomfortable, and it can be undereating at times, wishing you had more. Normal eating is trusting your body will make up for your mistakes in eating. Normal eating takes up some of your time and attention, but keeps its place as only one important area of your life. In short, normal eating is flexible. It varies in response to your hunger, your schedule, and your proximity to food and your feelings. I'll talk to you next week with a new episode. The emoji for this week is commenting your favorite food. You can just write it out or use an emoji. Let it out with three T's is this podcast Instagram. I would love to talk to you there. I'm grateful for you. Talk to you soon.